out of Nigeria, and the movie is Darkness to Sorrow. They'd like to invite all of you to be there, and I did, they did say there will be some snacks, so uh, hopefully you can be there tomorrow night, Linda Whitley Lounge, uh, United Students of Africa. And then tonight, uh, in Angel Chapel from 5 to 5.30, we have early, uh, 5 to 5.20, we have early evening prayers. Uh, there is no chapel credit for that, but if you'd like to conclude your day and begin your evening in the middle of this week with prayer and scripture reading and responsive reading, we'd love for you to join us. Our chapel speaker today is Dr. Jan Lanham. How many of you had Dr. Lanham? Even some faculty have raised their hands of who have had uh, Dr. Lanham as a professor. So, uh, Dr. Lanham is professor of psychology, social science division chair, social psychology and sociology department chair. She has a PhD in pastoral psychology and counseling from Boston University and a bachelor's from Eastern Nazarene College. She's been teaching at ENC since... Uh, a few years ago, and has served as a dean of students from uh, one year to about eight years later. She is a licensed mental health counselor in Massachusetts and has set up therapy groups in the Quincy area for female adult survivors of child abuse and maintains a small therapy practice in Quincy. She teaches in many areas of psychology and is a specialist in student development, counseling and women's issues, and sexual abuse issues. She's co-authored the book Choices in Pursuit of Wholeness. She and her husband, Tim, have been married for a couple of years. Uh, they have two children, Jonathan, who's the associate registrar here at ENC, and Greg, who I believe is in Ohio, working in social work. And uh, the most important thing she wanted me to talk about is just the joy of her life, her new seven-month-old granddaughter, Rebecca Reese, which she's, of course, very proud of. So please welcome Dr. Lanham. She will be bringing the word to us this, this morning. Will you please stand for prayer? As we did last week, let us just begin with silent prayer. And in a silence beyond words, lift your cares and concerns and praise to the Lord and know that he hears your prayer. Please continue worshiping with us.
dip your heart dip your heart in the stream of life let the pain and the sorrow be washed away be washed away in the waves in the waves of his mercy as deep Come one more time. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And all who are thirsty. All who are thirsty. Cry out to him this morning. All who are. All who are weak. Come to the fountain.
out to him. You are the one. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace. Hearts always you heal the broken hearts in here, Father God, and those struggling with certain things, Lord, and those that may be in despair, Father God, or depressed, or may feel like they've reached their wit's end. Let them know that you are their Savior, you are their comforter, you are their healer, you are their friend. We praise you in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here's the thing. I think I've been going to 
there's probably thousands of chapels going out. <laughs> and so Corey has been going back years and years and years and years. Um, and it's still intimidating to get up in front of you guys <laughs> and to share. But yet, um, there are a few things that I really would like to share this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we all came to chapel and it was homecoming, and there was a theme called Celebrate the Journey. And I love this concept of journey. I, I think it's such a powerful human concept. It's something, you know, obviously, it's from our very first breath to our very last breath. Our lives are bounded by this concept of journey, our comings and goings, our leavings and our returnings. And then several months ago, then uh, Blake Marshall contacted a bunch of faculty and asked, what kinds of books should we have in the bookstore? What would you recommend? Books that have impacted you, books that have meant a lot to you. And the name that I gave him, and I didn't have to think very long about it, was by Henry Nowen called The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is actually a book that has profound and profoundly affected me over the years. Now, Henry Nowen, in case you haven't uh, been acquainted with him, actually is a Catholic priest, was Catholic priest, who um, probably has had as much of an impact on the Protestant evangelical world as he has had on the Catholic world. But his journey took him from Holland to the United States, and he was at Notre Dame, Yale, and then finally at Harvard Divinity. And from Harvard Divinity, teaching at Harvard Divinity and uh, serving as a, a pastoral presence there, he made the journey from that point to working as the chaplain in a community that they call the Large Community in Toronto, Canada. And that's a community of adult mentally challenged <coughs> residents. Quite a journey, quite a change. And his, uh, some of the many books that he has written has really reflected this sense of being sensitive to the call of God and on the, his love um, and making the changes, making the journey uh, when God really called him to do so. Well, there was a chance encounter that Henry Nowen had with a poster. And that poster was of the beautiful masterpiece by Rembrandt of The Return of the Prodigal Son. Got it going, thank you. <laughs> and um, this was a, a, he just happened to walk by a person's office. He saw this poster, and Rembrandt's picture just reached out and grabbed Nowen in a way that he had never quite experienced before. He probably connected a lot with what he was going through with his own life and the things that he was experiencing. And eventually, he actually traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia, to the Hermitage museum where Rembrandt's masterpiece is hung. And this is a huge masterpiece, almost life-size. And he got special permission to just sit in front of this masterpiece and allow God to speak to him. And he introduces in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, some just some wonderful insights around this concept of the journey. So I'd like to put these two things together, this theme that we've been talking about for a couple of chapels, and some of the words of Henry Nowen and bring them together and talk about this journey of the prodigal son. So, it's really not just one journey. It's really not just, even though the scripture often talks about it as um, the prodigal son's journey, it's really at least three journeys. And I think if we consider all the people that are here today and maybe extended, maybe 
just maybe it's also the story of all of our journeys at some point and at some piece. So let's hear the scripture um, that is found in Luke, and I'm using the um, translation from the message. You're probably very, very familiar. This is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he could have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses, and he said, All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in, and as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Calling over to one of the house boys, he asked, what was going on? He told them, your brother has come home. Your father has ordered a feast. Barbecued beef. Gotta love the message. <laughs> because he has him home, safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, how many years have I stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, Son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate 
This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. Now, when we first hear this story, we might be inclined to pencil in the names of those people that we'd like to cast in the role of the prodigal son. Siblings, roommates, uh, you know, people that you know. But perhaps, if we're honest with ourselves, we begin to locate our own stories embedded within, someplace within, this master story. So part of the question is, who do you resonate with? Do you resonate with the younger son? Do you resonate more with the elder brother? I always thought when I was little that when they asked the question in Sunday school, you know, who was really upset that the younger son had come home? It seemed to me that the fatty calf was really the one that was totally <laughs> upset, but... Um, that really wasn't what the teacher was looking for. But. but anyway, when the younger son left home, it was pretty much like saying, you know, you're as good as dead to me, Dad. I want my money now. Inheritances, after all, wouldn't have been available until the person died. So when he left, it was pretty much like saying, you know, you don't need this money anymore. You're gone. You're dead. You're old cat. You're good. I need it. Give it to me now. The amazing thing is that with very great sorrow, the father did do that very uncharacteristically. He gave him his inheritance. So you know the rest of the story. The son blows through all of his resources and all of the friends who had loved him when he could pay for a really good time were nowhere to be found when he was hungry and when he was penniless. And he eventually sank so low that he was envious of the pigs he was feeding, and as Tori pointed out on Friday's chapel, for a, a Jew to be working with pigs really meant that he had sunk to the very bottom in terms of being unclean and being abandoned. So his desperate need was right there. He couldn't miss it. It was absolutely overwhelming him. He had royally blown it. There was no question about that. And for all of his bragging about how he didn't need those back home, things look very different right now. And when he looked at all of his options and remembered the embrace of family and home, he decided to make the trip home. Now the picture that Rembrandt, this is a, a detail of just the sun. And obviously Rembrandt really portrayed the sun as pretty disheveled, no, the no shoes on his feet, he's pretty worn. And you could just see someone coming home and sinking into the father's arms and just being exhausted, hungry, and totally out there, totally by himself. And he does just an amazing job of drawing us into the plight of this younger brother. Well, as this son comes home, he realizes that he really can only offer the father his ability to work. Just make me a hired hand. I know I can't be called your son. I'm wondering today in what ways might we identify with this younger son. There might be some of us in this room who have tried to live our lives in our own power, and for our own purposes, and perhaps it's feeling a bit empty right now. 
There may be some who have felt very far from the embrace of the Father and feel that way too much water has gone under the bridge and there is no way back to the Father. And yet, we see it in the words of the scripture and we feel it in Rembrandt's picture. The younger son's fear and trembling was met by a father's arm and a loving welcome home. But I'm wondering if there might be some more subtle ways this morning that some of us might be prodigal on our journey. And in this point, Nowen has some wonderfully insightful things to say about this. Nowen challenges us by, by helping us look at perhaps what the younger son really represents. And maybe it's the challenge of seeing our own needs, of understanding where we sometimes tend to look for our sense of identity and approval. Listen to Nowen's words. At issue here is the question, to whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits. And a little success excites me. As long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with it. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good-looking, intelligent, wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, good connections. The world's love is always, is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I'll remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. Listen to these words. I am the prodigal son. Every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep leaving home where I am called a child of God, the beloved of my father? I'm constantly surprised at how I keep taking the gifts God has given me, my health, my intellectual and emotional gifts, and keep using them to impress people receive affirmation and praise and compete for rewards instead of developing them for the glory of God. Now and goes on and says, Yes, I often carry them off to a distant country and put them in the service of an exploiting world that doesn't know their true value. So I'm wondering, for each one of us, are there ways in which we have taken our gifts off? to a distant country. Rather than grounding our sense of identity, not on how much we're approved of by others, but by how much God loves us. There may be some of us that connect in this story more with the younger brother's expectation that he could only ask for a servant's role and work in order to earn a place under the father's roof. Because I think some Christians really get caught and really in some ways, when they feel like their forgiveness continually needs to be earned. We have to work harder and harder and harder to prove to God that, yes, God really should love us. 
But the beauty of the younger son's journey is that he went home knowing his need and being willing to earn his way, but he was met with a love that he could not earn and an acceptance that he could not buy. All he could do was to sink into the arms of his father's compassionate embrace. When you see the father and the son together, you realize the father is is aged, um, probably aged a lot when his younger son left, worrying about him, wondering what was going on. But you really get this sense of an embrace, a a wrapping around, a bringing back, a a totally enveloping uh, experience for that younger son. There were a lot of options for this father. He didn't have to do this. But the fact that he had those arms open and he had been waiting to, to have this experience with his son. But I think many times we still struggle really believing in our deepest places that God really loves us. Not simply for what we can do, but simply because we are God's children. That's, that's easy to say, but it, it is a real struggle for a lot of people. Well, what about the journey of the elder brother? Now, in this picture, he, he looks a lot like the father. He's got a red robe. He looks very stately and very, um, you know, has a lot of authority. But do you notice where his hands are? He's got these clasped hands, and they're tightly clasped. You notice the contrast between the father and the open arms and the son. Just, it's like he's holding his hands so that he doesn't open them. And he's looking down, kind of staying at a little bit of a distance and watching this whole scene. So what about this journey of the elder brother? In this picture, he does look a lot like the father. But in reality, he is very, very far from the mark. But being an eldest child myself, I think I can, I can resonate with this poor elder brother. And the pressure of being responsible and feeling like you're working hard while younger siblings may seem to have a lot more freedom to do their own thing. And it's easy for elder brother types to kind of feel like you don't count. You're just there and you kind of keep plugging away. Now, I grew up very close to where Corey grew up, only eons before Corey was there. But um, in my day, <laughs> when I was a teen, it was the time when um, there were all kinds of uh, wonderful things happening in New York City. I grew up outside of the city. And um, there was a guy by the name of Dave Wilkerson who worked with the gangs in New York City. And there were just some spectacular stories that came out of the city. There were movies made, Mrs. Coogs and Crossing the Switchblade uh, was one of them. And, and as a teen, I used to go into different rallies in New York City and used to listen to these former gang members talk. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm a teen in a church outside of the city. They haven't murdered anybody yet. Uh, I'm not a drug dealer. I don't even take drugs. I'm not a prostitute. My testimony seemed absolutely boring and absolutely dull. And for me, this was a real problem because I really struggled for a long time really thinking through, I don't have any big dramatic story to tell. 
does God really love me? Does he really care? I mean, I'm just kind of plugging away here. I was a kid who worked hard at school. I was active in church. I just didn't have the great, exciting, dramatic stories of turning on. And it was pretty easy, like the elder brother Steve, to kind of feel like you're working, you're there, but you're nowhere near as exciting as all these other people who have these great stories. And perhaps you get overlooked. It took me a while to really come upon something that had really made a difference uh, for me in my own spiritual journey. But I began to realize that it's not as important what Christ had saved people from, because that could be many different journeys. But what was important was what Christ had saved people to, and that anyone could be saved into a lifelong experience of the grace and mercy and love of God. We're saved to the call to become more and more like Christ in our everyday existence. And what I began to realize, as exciting as their journeys had been up to that point, that what Christ was really calling us to was an unbelievably exciting adventure of leaning into learning to be in God's embrace, leaning into the grace and mercy and love of God. The problem with the elder brother was that he was just as lost as the younger son, even though he never had left home. While he dutifully worked for the father, he believed that the father loved him because he was conscientious, because he was a hard worker. But he really didn't get to the point where he could rest in the father's love. And thus, he never tested it out. He never asked for a party even though that party could have been there for him had he asked. All he could envision was an exacting justice rather than a lavish expression of grace and mercy. So to the outside world, this elder son looked like a model son. He looked just like the father. But inside, he's just as far away from the father as the prodigal had been. Because he had while he stayed at home, he was living a life without joy and without gratitude. He felt sure he had earned his position in the family. So his self-righteousness, his anger, his quick condemnation of others revealed that he was very far from seeing his own need for grace and mercy. Now one puts it this way. Resentment and gratitude cannot Coexist, since resentment blocks the perception and experience of life as a gift. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. And that was the elder brother's problem. He was a joyless person. So the elder son needed to return home, but he hadn't realized the extent of the distance between his father and himself. And maybe the elder brother felt like he had to compete with the younger son for the father's love, as if there was only one pie of love. And if he, any love went to that younger son, it somehow took away from the love given to the elder brother. So for the elder son, comparison and rivalry were really the bedrock in his relationship with his son, with the younger son. 
and the foundation of his perceived position with the Father. What he didn't realize was that the love the Father gave to the younger son did not in any way diminish the love that he was able to extend to his older son. I don't know if, uh, when you look at this next picture, there's a figure that's in Rembrandt's pictures, actually several figures, and it's kind of a picture of an observer. This person is sort of looking on. We don't know a whole lot about what Rembrandt was depicting in that. We're not sure who these people were. We don't know where they are, where they fit into. But they can also represent a journey. It's a safe position to stay outside of things and be a critical observer. And a lot of people spend a lot of years doing that, outside looking in. It's a pretty difficult journey to give up the safety of being on the outside, just observing, and then entering into the vulnerability of being a son. But when we remain an outside observer, we miss the possibility of the embrace of the Father. Well, the last journey is the Father's. We often really just concentrate on the younger son and the elder brother and really don't talk a lot about the father. But now in book is, is wonderful in directing our attention to that, the father. The journey does change forever when we become a parent. And, and I have to say I have been incredibly blessed with two sons of my own. Um, and I don't want to tag on them, you know, just the elder son and the younger brother. But I am thankful that my elder son... He is very responsible. <laughs> Help me do this PowerPoint thing. Uh, he is a digital native. I'm a digital immigrant, so it, it worked out pretty well. So um, I, I appreciate his efforts here. Um, when you become a parent, uh, things do change, and you see things very differently. And when you become a grandparent, it's even more so. Um, in, in just in a wonderfully uh, intimate, wonderful way. And my sons and now my granddaughter are certainly continually teaching me and challenging me and in many, many ways blessing me. For the father in this story, his heart was broken by the actions of both of his sons. And it really reminds us of the difficult position of being a father. And when we want children to be free to love, we also have to recognize that we have to give them also the opportunity to leave us and to reject us and to go out on their own. But the father had had the experience of waiting and watching the horizon for a very long time. And when he saw the silhouette of his son making his way home, he ran to meet him in a way that is very uncharacteristic of that culture. He had been waiting for this moment for so long. The father's love had not abated. It had not gone away, even though the, the younger son had been gone and had in many ways so desperately hurt the father. But now we suggest the parable of the prodigal son is a story that speaks about love that existed before any rejection was possible and that is still there after all rejections have taken place. So whether we identify with bits and pieces of the younger son or the older brother, 
The most startling aspect of Nowen's book was that he suggested that the call on our lives is not to just connect with the younger and the older, but to make the Father's journey our own. This is what he said. Why talk so much about being like the sons when the real question is, are you interested in being like the Father? Do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Not just the one who is being welcomed home, but also the one who welcomes home. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. That's a journey to go on, to become the father in this story. That's a journey, I think, that takes all of our lives to really come to fruition. I'd like to challenge you today to think about this story and to think about your own journey and maybe to think about ways in which you connect with different pieces of this journey. But I want you first and foremost to recognize that wherever you locate your story in this bigger master story, the Father's arms are there to embrace you with grace, compassion, mercy, and love. Let me pray before you go. Father, we thank you for each life that's represented here. May each person seek today to locate themselves within the scope of your amazing story. Give us the courage, God, to allow us to be embraced by you. Give us the courage to allow us to be forgiven by you. And give us the courage to allow us to be set free by you, to become the one who blesses, compassionately loves, and gives. We pray in thy name. Amen. Go in peace.